everyone. This is your host, Mark C. Crowley. Before we get on with our show, a brief mention that the second edition of my book has just gone on sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at all other book purveyors, and will be published August 23rd. I'm honored to say that Harvard Business School professor Amy C. Edmondson says, my book is destined to be a classic. Hubert Jolie, former CEO at Best Buy and best-selling author of The Heart of Leadership, calls it an indispensable companion for today's leaders. When I wrote the book originally 11 years ago, many business leaders, some of you know, misinterpreted its title, thinking I was advocating for some rather soft and weak leadership. Today, I hope very much that through listening to this podcast and perhaps by reading some of my Fast Company and LinkedIn articles, that you know what I'm prescribing in my new edition is the exact opposite of that. And that it's proven to drive sustainably greater performance than any of our traditional leadership practices. The second edition of Lead from the Heart is truly the embodiment of everything I've learned about motivating human beings in the workplace. And it's my life's work. As such, I would be so very honored if you pre-ordered a copy and perhaps considered getting copies for your teams. Thank you. And now on to our show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I've just finished recording the episode you're about to hear, and I need to tell you right off that my guest, Alan Murray, could not have been more gracious in responding to all of my questions. In truth, virtually all of my previous guests have been extremely gracious, but what makes Alan so unique is that I entered into our conversation with some healthy cynicism around the premise of his book. And as a result, I challenged him perhaps more than any guest I've ever interviewed before. Let me give you some background to help you better understand. Alan Murray is the CEO of Fortune Media, owner of Fortune Magazine. He spent a long career as a top business journalist, including as deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. And unlike most people on the planet, he's had tremendous access to the world's top CEOs for decades. In his new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business, Murray tells us that he's observed firsthand that senior business leaders, CEOs especially, are evolving in a very positive way. He says we're living through a moment of profound change in how chief executives understand their role and argues that this shift is already changing the way that business operates. Now, all of us are familiar with CEOs who have deferred exclusively to the interests of shareholders, laid off workers to meet quarterly earnings goals, resisted paying frontline employees a living wage, and intentionally created cutthroat work cultures as a means to driving profits. So. I honestly entered into the conversation with some healthy skepticism on your behalf, of course. A few of us could argue that capitalism doesn't require a major upgrade. And as you'll hear, Murray cites impressive evidence which proves a shift in leadership thinking is truly underway. We see CEOs speaking up on social issues like climate change, Black Lives Matter movement, discrimination of all kinds, and even income inequality. And Murray says CEOs are clearly moving away from the deferential treatment shareholders have been given for the past 50 years. I think Alan Murray is a mensch for allowing me to challenge him so directly about his belief that the top CEOs are changing for good. And he did a rather impressive job of persuading me that he's in fact right. So please listen in and see if you agree. So welcome to the podcast, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Well, I'm glad we were able to make this thing work. And it's interesting because I just finished your book. And so it's very on top of my mind. And your central thesis is that through all the uncommon exposure that you have to the world's top CEOs, that you believe the business world is changing and specifically embracing stakeholder capitalism, especially post-COVID. So you write in your book that global capitalism is in a moment of crisis. So let's start there. Share some of the key indicators persuading us that most CEOs won't continue deferring to the interest of shareholders over all others, including employees, as they've always done. Yeah. So, Mark, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Look, I detect some skepticism in your question, which is understandable and fine. I mean, I've been a journalist my whole life and I I was a skeptic as well. But what happened to me was I have an unusual opportunity to talk to the leaders of large organizations. We do a lot of events, a lot of interviews. And so over the course of the last 10 years, I've talked to She's almost every member of the Fortune 100. I do a podcast, so I, I have a lot of these conversations. And what struck me as a journalist was in the last 10 years that, wow, these men and women are talking about their jobs in very different ways than they had before, very different. And I, my first reaction was probably similar to yours was, is this just talk? Is it just a bunch of PR? Is it BS? Is it fluff? Or is something different going on? And that's what led to my investigation. I wanted to sort of understand what was going on that was different and why it was different and what was driving it. And my conclusion is there's some some fundamental changes in the way businesses operate that are causing this change in the way companies talk about their social responsibilities. Those are changes that are deeply rooted, have been building up over decades and are not going to reverse. And it's not that CEOs have suddenly grown larger hearts, you know, (laughs) or a greater sense of social responsibility. It's the dynamics of succeeding in business have changed and force you to pay more attention to both human and climate issues in order to succeed. And we can talk about that in more detail, but I became convinced that there are fundamental forces going on here that mean that if you're going to succeed in a business in today's world, you have to behave very differently than CEOs did 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you just said a lot, and let me go back to the very beginning, which is, thank you for being gracious. I am skeptical. And as we were talking about before we began, I have many connections and a lot of interaction on Twitter. And I would say that the consensus is massive cynicism about CEOs. And your turn of the phrase, which I love, is that they haven't grown bigger hearts. So they're not being influenced humanly. They're being influenced in terms of how do I drive successful organizations? So this is a practical response, right? It's not a you know, the CEOs are having an epiphany that they've got to be more, do more. They're saying it in relationship to changing circumstances. Yeah. The world's changing and I got to change with it. As simple as that, which by the way, doesn't make me all that happy. I'd like to see a little bit more of a heart shift, if you will. But why first, why is the shift happening? What's influencing it? And then I'm going to ask you to give us examples of how it's changing or how they're changing. There are several different reasons, and and that's what I try and lay out in the book. But let me start with what I think is the biggest one. 
And I'm going to give you one fact, because if there's one fact that will help you understand the change, I think it's this one. If you look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500, if you did that in the 1970s and you said, where is the value coming from in this big company? What you would find in the 1970s is more than 80% of the value was physical stuff. The valuable companies were the ones that had plants, they had equipment, they had oil in the ground, they had inventory on the shelves, all the things that it requires capital to accumulate. And if you had that stuff, you had value. If you do the same exercise today, you look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 and say, where is the value coming from? What you find is more than 85% of the value today is not stuff, it's intangibles. It's things like intellectual property, computer code, brand value, the emotional connection that you have with your customers. Those are all human things. And so companies derive their value in a much more human-centric way today than they did 50 years ago. There are other changes that are involved here. There are political changes. Social media is a big piece of it. I think there's some important generational changes. But that one change, the dematerialization of companies, the fact that companies by their very nature are deriving their value from human beings is probably the biggest reason for the change. And that's why I say it's not reversible. We're not going back. Companies to succeed must be much more human-centric than they had to be even 20 years ago. So when you're saying human-centric, are you leaning very much into customers or are you also including the employee side of this? It's both, Mark, but I can tell you over the course of 10 years, like every time Look, I, I wrote this book because I was surprised by these conversations I was having. And the first question I would ask every time somebody told me about something they were doing for the good of society or the good of the climate or whatever, mm -hmm. the first question I would ask is, why are you doing this? Because I've been a business journalist for four decades and I, I hadn't heard people talk like this before. And the first answer almost every time was because my employees want me to. So I do think employees, and this does get into the generational piece of this, I do think the employees are the number one driver. Now, as you well know, it's not just employees. You're starting to see it from customers. You've seen a lot of activity in the last two years from investors, but I think it starts with employees. You know, it's interesting you should point that out because I always thought that being the CEO, that they had access to greater information, greater wisdom, if you will, scientific research that indicates a better way to manage and lead, that they would embrace it and it would be top down. And what you've just confirmed is what I'm observing, which is that it's not the CEOs who are changing the cultures of their organizations. It's the employees who are coming in and demanding that the cultures be changed in order to create workplaces that they want to belong to. That's right. And employees have more influence in those questions. Look, one of the other interesting changes, again, if you kind of take a 50-year view, 50 years ago, big corporations were kind of information hierarchies. You'd have all these people out in the field doing stuff and they would pass information up the hierarchy until it got to the C-suite and the folks in the C-suite would sit there and make a strategy and then they would pass the orders back down the hierarchy, right? So it was much more of a top-down and the CEO's job was much more about telling people what to do. 
No company operates like that today, can operate like that today, no large company. The world is changing too fast. And so every leader will tell you that they have to empower people in the field to respond to the situation on the ground. Because if you wait for all that information to float up to the top, you're dead. You're behind the curve. And so what that means is the CEO's job has become much less about telling people what to do and much more about inspiring, setting the North Star, setting the moral guardrails, attracting great talent, motivating great talent. The job's just very different. It's a human organization. How do you get thousands of people moving effectively in the same direction? It's not about telling them what to do. It's about giving them a reason to do it. And that's a big, big change from 20, 30, 40. It's a profound change. And I'm sure people listening are saying hallelujah. <laughs> you know? But Mark, let me just add, they're saying hallelujah because the history of the 20th century was we were trying to make people into machines, cogs in machines, Correct. basically. I mean, that's what scientific management was about. Like, how do we make people into better machines? It's pretty clear to me, having spent the last few years exploring this, that the history of the 21st century is going to be the machines can take care of themselves. Thank you very much. We need people to be good people. You know, we need those human skills to really uh, to really motivate people to accomplish what needs to be accomplished now to create value. I want to get your take on how you think CEOs today are treating the great resignation. But before I do, give us a aggregation of who are these CEOs? How old are they? What's their attitude? How are they different from the CEO from, say, 10, 15 years ago? Any insight that you can give us that says this is the CEO today? Yeah, sure. You know, I just finished reading David Gellis's book about Jack Welch. I have it right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you know it. Mm-hmm. And I don't completely agree with Gellis's <laughs> thesis, but I thought it was an interesting picture of how Jack Welch led. I knew Jack Welch. I interviewed him on many occasions. And remember, that was only 20 years ago. And what you realize is, geez, the way he led that company, no successful CEO today leads their company that way. No successful CEO. And What do you mean by that specifically? Yeah, so what is the difference? First of all, and the pandemic accelerated all these things, a much greater sense of empathy, a much greater sense of vulnerability, much more attention to their employees. And you can argue about how much of it is real and how much of it is feigned. But, you know, I had a conversation with Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, who I think is a really impressive guy. You know, you can argue, but Walmart still got people out there. It's only paying $17 an hour. Mm -hmm. It's more than it was paying them a couple of years ago. But we were talking about inflation, and and I said, look, this has got to be a real problem for you. I mean, Walmart is always focused on keeping prices down. Prices are going up. Employees are demanding higher wages. Wages are going up. And he stopped me, and he said, we like to increase wages. Now, I can't even see you, Mark, <laughs> and I know skeptical eyes are raising. But the point is, I mean, Jack Welch never would have said that. The 20th century view was employees were an input like oil or, you know, mm-hmm. any other thing mm-hmm. that and you wanted to buy it at the lowest price you could possibly buy it. And the, the fact that the CEO of Walmart recognizes, I'm sure Sam Walton, by the way, who started Walmart, viewed labor as just another input into the great machine. And you wanted to buy that input at the lowest possible price. The fact that even the CEO of Walmart feels compelled to say that's not the way we think about these things today 
I think is pretty striking. So it's much more employee focused. It's much more em- empathetic, much more vulnerable, and much more regard for stakeholders beyond the shareholder. Not that they don't care about the shareholder anymore. If you're not making money for the shareholder, you're going to go out of business, period. And so the rest of it is a waste of time. But just much more attention to the other stakeholders, mostly because they feel those stakeholders are going to be necessary to their long-term success. Maybe not important to their results in the next quarter, but necessary to their long-term success. So you said at the beginning that you are, well, I'll call it intimate with the top 100, Fortune 100 companies. So you said also that their hearts really aren't being expanded here. So when you talk about a Doug McMillan at Walmart and his interest in elevating compensation for store workers and so forth, just pin this down. This isn't because they think that people can't get by on what they were paying them, specifically in a Walmart, but rather that it's being driven in a market-driven competitive need. So in order to attract people that can serve customers in their stores, they were kind of forced into it? Or do you think that they're evolving in the sense that, hey, we got to pay people a fair wage? I don't think it's a sudden recognition, hey, we have to be better. I don't think that's it. I think it is a recognition that their success depends on their employees. This gets to your question about the great resignation, that in a world where value is derived from your people, talent matters more. And a recognition that if you take better care of your talent, you're going to provide a better experience, service, whatever to the customers and you will be more successful. Let me give you another example. PayPal, which operates call centers all around the world, and for years set wages in its call centers. Those are pretty low-wage jobs, but it set wages the same as any company did. It said, we'll go into a city, find out what the prevailing wage is. Maybe we'll pay a little over the prevailing wage so that we can get the best people to come work for us, but it'll be market determined. And Dan Shulman, who's the CEO of PayPal, said, you know, I'm not sure that's the right way to get people on the phones with our customers who are fully engaged with those customers. Because if they're worrying about whether they're going to have enough money to feed their family that month, they're not going to be providing good service. And so he came up with a new calculation that basically said, what is a living wage in this city? Like, what does it take for you to pay for your your rent and your food and have enough disposable income to not be afraid every time you come into work and reset the whole wage setting process in his company? That's very different than the Friedmanite view of, you know, it's not my problem what the market wage is. I just am a, a price taker in the market. So it's it's that kind of thing that I'm talking about. And I'm not saying these are bad people. I'm not saying they're good people. They're people, but they are smart people. And they recognize that they are living in a business world where value is much more directly tied to their people than it was in the past, where value might have been determined more by how much oil you had buried in the ground or how many factories you had managed to accumulate or how much inventory you had on the shelves. Well, God bless Dan Schultz, <laughs> you know, um, honestly, because, you know, he understands something that this audience understands that, you know, we human beings aren't as rational as we like to pride ourselves to be and that we're driven by feelings and emotions. And if our emotional well-being, our literal safety isn't established, 
then it's really hard for us to be focused on the conversation we're having with somebody on the phone about what their PayPal account is doing or their Capital One account or whatever, right? And so that's a rather enlightened way of thinking about how do you pay someone and what would be the merits of doing that from a business standpoint. So how many other Dan Schulmans are there in the hundred that you- I had this conversation with Jim Collins, who you know has written many business books and and his point to me was the best companies have always operated this way. Yep. And I say, okay, that may be true that the best companies have always operated that way. But I think what's different is it's no longer a luxury. This is what you have to do to succeed in today's environment because of the, the changes, some of which we've already talked about. There are other changes in there as well, but there is a generational change, I strongly believe it. There is a kind of a social media change that makes all of these people operate in a much more transparent world mm-hmm. than they did 10 or 20 years ago. That's an important part of the change. And by the way, there is also a government failure. Part of the reason why CEOs are speaking out on climate and taking actions on climate or speaking out on social justice, diversity and inclusion or training, those are all issues that 20 years ago, most CEOs would have told you, that's not my problem, that's the government's problem. But the government isn't doing it. And if you take a long-term view, you have to say, geez, my company isn't going to be around in 30 years if society melts down because of an inequality crisis or if the planet burns or if we dispossess a quarter of the population because they don't look like us. So I think some of it is driven by failures in the political sector as well. So there are all those things going on at the same time, but few of those forces are reversible. Do you think that CEOs are reluctantly changing and embracing this new reality, that it's more of a human thing you called it earlier? So in other words, are they trying to cling to the past and hold on to as much of what they know Or are you seeing people who've been CEOs for a while say, this is the new reality and we're throwing off all the old clothes and putting on the new clothes as fast as we possibly can? It's all of the above. It depends on the person. I mean, there are certainly CEOs and I hear it in their voices saying, geez, I wish I could go back to the world that Jack Welch lived in where I could just focus on the financials and, you know, steady return to shareholder. And when a complicated, controversial issue like transgender access to public yeah. bathrooms came mm-hmm. up, I could hide under my desk and keep my mouth shut. So there are definitely CEOs who who are nostalgic for that older, simpler world because this stuff is hard. I mean, look at what happened to Disney in Florida. You know, that was a mess, and I would describe it as a stakeholder mess. I mean, basically what happened was Florida passes this law saying you can't talk about gender identity in elementary school. The LGBTQ community gets upset, thinks it's discriminatory, has very strong feelings about it. Disney's own employees. Mm -hmm. Disney, and by the way, you know, I talk about companies that live off of intangibles. There is nothing more important to Disney than the creative people who create these great movies that cause people to watch Disney, many of them in Southern California. And there's a strong LGBTQ community that's part of that talent group. And the CEO's first reaction was, I don't want to say anything because Florida is incredibly important, Disney World. I want to just keep my mouth shut. And his employees revolted, literally revolted. They say, this is too deep and personal for us. It's too emotional. This is a company that has always nurtured us and treated us well. You, Mr. CEO, cannot keep your mouth shut. And so finally, after two weeks of saying nothing and doing what every CEO would have done 20 years ago, 
just hiding under his desk, he finally came out and made a strong statement against it, which then sparked a different stakeholder reaction. The governor and the state legislature said, okay, we're going to take away some of your, your government benefits. So, you know, no CEO wants to be in that situation, but I think the Disney story shows you can't avoid it. It's the nature of business today. And this gets to the generational piece, Mark. You know, I know why my father worked. My father was a child of the depression. He went to work to make money. If he wanted to do good in the world, he would go to his church or his social clubs or whatever, but he went to work to make money. My children are very, very different than that. I've got two early thirties daughters and yes, they want to make money, but they also want to know that they're working for somebody who's doing good in the world. And they're mm-hmm. neither of them is married. Neither of them belongs to an organized church. They don't belong to social clubs, which is typical of their generation. And so the employer is their most, in many cases, their only formal relationship to society. And what they want from their employer is not just a living, but a sense of purpose, a sense that they're doing good in the world. And so I do think it's a a different generational dynamic that's driving a lot of this as well. Well, speaking of Disney here, I mean, that could not have backfired any worse on Disney. Certain media channels took that information and just really, really did a number on Disney's reputation. And then I think I even saw in one of your recent updates that CEOs were like, whoa, like, wait a minute, this doesn't have the reward I thought it might. So in the future here, are you thinking that CEOs are going to back off on stepping in on social issues, given how the black eye from DeSantis in Florida, you know, kind of made Disney look like the worst place on earth instead of the best place on earth? I don't think they have that option. Really? I think many of, I think many of them would like to, and we've seen that in some of our polling. I don't think they have that option, and I'm pretty sure if you could sit down right now with Bob Chapik, the CEO of Disney, and saying, should you have just stuck to your no comment position, he would say that was not an option. Okay, that's good. It was not an option. Let's go back to the great resignation here. What do you think the CEOs think is the cause and the solution? It's only a kind of a heightened version of what I was talking about, which is employees are much more critical to the value of the organization today than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, and therefore they have much more sway in the organization. It was a heightened exaggerated by the government policies of the pandemic, and not just government policies. The pandemic itself caused people to withdraw from the workforce. The government policies were massive stimulus that increased demand. So you had a situation of less supply, more demand, which puts even more power into the hands of workers, obviously. But the CEOs I talked to don't think it is a temporary phenomena. They think it's a continuation of what I was talking about, which is which is the companies that will win are the companies that have the best talent. And so you have to focus on how you attract great talent in order to create value. So I don't think it's going away. I think if you look at the surveys on this topic, obviously they want money as always, but flexibility is really important. That's why I think the people who are pounding the table, the kind of Jamie Dimons and David Solomons who are Mm -hmm. pounding the table and say, we want everybody back to the office are going to end up losing because many of the best people are saying, hey, I've learned what flexibility and when I work and where I work can do for me. And I've learned that I can be highly productive with more flexibility. And so I'm only going to work for you if you give me that flexibility. So are the CEOs treating the great resignation as 
turnover, which now represents a cost of doing business. So we just build it into our cost of doing business. I think it's more than that. Look, we just had a another CEO poll that came out of the field. Inflation in this poll, inflation topped talent as the number one concern of the CEOs, but talent still remains very high. And and inflation in a lot of ways is just another form of the talent issue, which is you got to pay more for great people. So I think it remains a top level concern for most CEOs and and will for some time. Now, we'll see if, you know, if we're facing a recession in the next six to 12 months, we'll see if that changes things. But I don't think it will, because even during the pandemic, when unemployment was up in, you know, the nine, 10 percent, the battle for talent didn't ease up. A lot of the unemployment was more service workers, but the companies that are fighting for top tier talent, which they need to drive their business values, were fighting as fiercely as ever during that period. Do you see them doing this with pay? Do they think pay is the solution to the great resignation or are they reinventing cultures and, and specifically, which is sort of germane to this podcast, are they looking at how they manage people? Are they looking at who they hire for management roles and the qualities that they have? Absolutely. It's all of the above. Certainly, it's pay. You see that in the pay numbers. Certainly, it's flexibility. Employees are demanding it. I think the people I talk to recognize that probably the most important influence on whether an employee stays or an employee goes is their next level manager. And so, Mm -hmm. if you don't have good people in those next level management jobs, you're going to lose. So, there's a lot of focus on that and how do we and how do we up the level of our line managers? Training is a big issue. It's like, how do we upgrade the skills of the people who work for us? Because both because they're demanding it and because that may be easier than going out and trying to find those skills in a very tight marketplace. And I think this is what makes the conversation going on at companies around diversity, equity, and inclusion right now much more serious than it's been in the past. Hmm. Because at 3% unemployment and when you're battling for skills, you can't afford to say, we're just going to write off a third of the labor force or we're going to write off women who want to stay home because of caregiving responsibilities. Or So companies are thinking much more seriously and creatively about how do they create opportunities for women who have caregiving responsibilities, for minorities who don't have a four-year college degree, but have the capability with a little bit of extra training to be really productive and committed employees. So there's a lot of stuff going on in that area that is way more serious than it has been in previous years. That's really exciting. What are the behavioral differences that you see companies, you said training. So when you talk about training managers, What's the evolution there? What specifically are the behavioral differences between somebody in the, we'll say, we don't have to say Jack Welch area, we can say five years ago. What was pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, what are the behavioral differences that we're expecting from managers today? And many people now as well. I think part of it is the nature of the social contract, which is where the training piece comes in. You know, when I hire somebody, I'm not promising them a job for life. That's not the way the world works anymore. But I do need to promise them that when they leave this job, they will be better prepared for the next job than they were when they got here. So offering skills, training, some sort of promise that will make them a a more productive part of the labor force in the future is, is really important. And then I think 
managers are, and here the pandemic also accelerated everything. They're being forced to realize you can't, you know, there used to be this phrase managed by walking around. Mm-hmm. Well, that only works if everybody's in the office. Right. Yeah. Your management style has to be much more based on the work that people are doing than the hours that people are spending. And that's a, a different set of management skills. And then the thing that you and I have already talked about is employees want the freedom to do great work. Managers have to learn how to manage in a way that empowers them to do that. And so it's a much more, it's just a less command and control, much more focused on outcomes and outputs. Do you think that's going to be hard on managers to make that shift? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is hard. And don't get me wrong. I mean, this, the forces I am talking about are not solving all our problems, you know, greed, corruption, terrible managers, <laughs> all the things that have mm-hmm. that have beset companies from the beginning still exist. It's just that there's something there's something significant going on and by and large I think it's a good thing. I like the percolation and listening to you, I get more encouraged. So I'm glad we're having this conversation and I'm sure the people listening in are are grateful to it too. Because when they read your book they all have their own experience of working in companies and they're not always well run. And as you said, you know, we're not looking at perfection here. We're looking at percolation of ideas, of change and an evolution in how they think about how they should be running their organizations. And that's a very positive thing. But I want to pin down two CEOs that I'm sure you know very, very well. The first is Howard Schultz at Starbucks. I read a couple of days ago, I read that he literally was begging his employees to return to the office. I think he said he would get down on his knees and do push-ups, which struck me as being very un-Howard Schultz-like. And then (laughs) JPM Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, you mentioned a minute ago. This is sort of disturbing to me, not sort of very. He's installed all kinds of surveillance technology to monitor his employees. And specifically, I think it leans into the remote working behaviors of when they're, you know, on their computers and when they're not. And But it's deeper than that. And so I don't know how you build trust having those kinds of things in place with your employees, particularly the higher you go in the organization, more education, people are going to push back on that. So interested in your thoughts on that. But The big picture question is, how do you see hybrid work models holding up in the future when you've got two very prominent CEOs who clearly are against it? Yeah, well, a couple of things. One is, you know, don't kid yourself. (laughs) I mean, pretty much every company knows who's walking in the door and when they're walking in the door and who's on the computer system and when they're on the computer system. So really, I did not know that. Naive here. Is that true? Look, we live in a world of massive data spill off. I mean, I don't ask, but everybody walks in the building, you know, Castle Cards Company knows every time you walk into the building. Data is there. Your corporate computer systems know if you're on the computer. So everybody has that data. There's nothing particularly pernicious about either the existence of that data. You know, it's really more a question of what to do with it. I don't know what Jamie Dimon is doing with it. I know he has been very outspoken about his belief that it's important to get back to the office. And I have to tell you, I don't know any CEO or any manager who doesn't believe that there is an important place for in-person interaction at work, both to encourage collaboration, in some cases to encourage innovation, and also to just to create a sense of belonging, a culture. You know, part of the great resignation is it's so easy for people to 
change jobs. And so somebody comes along and offers you 10 more bucks. You say, well, why not? I'm just sitting at home on my computer. I can sit on my, at home on my computer for you as well as them. And, and what's missing there is the glue that held organizations together and created a sense of common purpose and made it easier for people to get over the problems that come up in human communication. So I think every CEO that I talk to feels a little bit of what Jamie Dimon is feeling. It's just that Jamie has a more ex- extreme way of expressing it. Well, I mean, there's a wide spectrum here, right? Yeah. Yeah, but we're going to work this out. Where do you think it's going? Because Jamie Dimon is someone who he'd like to go to sleep and wake up and have everybody show up at work five days a week. So, but is there enough pressure from CEOs? Absolutely. Absolutely. And right now, you know, where do I think it's going to end up? I think it's going to, you know, I think offices are still going to have a place in this and they're going to be, we have a lot of people, not a lot of people, we have some people here who have been coming into the office every day since uh, June of 2020 because they wanted to. They live in small apartments in in New York City or Brooklyn, and for one reason or another, they just found it better for their mental health to get out of their apartment and get to the office to work. So, you know, you're going to have a, a mix of options, but we are not going back to where we were before the pandemic. There is going to be way more flexibility in work arrangements because people are demanding it. Will there be an in-person an element, I think there probably has to be, my experience is, purely distributed, purely virtual relationships, even with all the new technology tools that we have, can't really make up for the value of in-person interaction. We human beings are, are social animals, you know, the, the look, the touch, the smell, the energy that happens when people are together is still a very important part of making human organizations. I totally agree with you. And I wrote an article for Fast Company and got the first time I've ever got hate mail from it because there was this knee-jerk reaction that, you know, what I was advocating for was somebody called me a corporate shill because I was saying that the human element of this, talk about your daughters, your daughters, you know, you, you were saying earlier that, you know, this is their connection to society. Well, it's also their connection to human beings, you know, in a very meaningful way. And so while I'm a very big fan of hybrid, I'm not a big fan of five days of full-time remote work. I think that's going to destroy society as we know it. But I appreciate you punctuating the fact that we're not going back and most companies understand that. Corn Ferry came out the other day and was sort of implying that as soon as the recession hits and, you know, we can sort of throw the ball down in the end zone and say, hey, we've reached the recession now, and that means that everybody has to come back to work because CEO is back in control again or you know, management's back in control. And I just thought, what a bad move that would be. You know, look, these predictions about the future are always difficult. I don't know any CEO who thinks we're going back. On the other hand, a year ago, most CEOs I talked to said they didn't think we'd be going back to the kind of crazy business travel that was occurring prior to the pandemic. And if you check on what's happening at the airlines and the airports today, it looks like we might be. So some of the business travel is people going to the office because everybody feels this need to, I mean, I'm having here at Fortune for the first time in two and a half years, all of our US and European employees together here in the office next Mm -hmm. week. Great. So there's a lot of travel, internal travel going on because people feel the need to get people together in, in person. But 
the level of travel has clearly caused the airlines and the airports to freak out. They can't keep up with it. Do you think that's like you were sort of implying that it's catch up after two years? I haven't seen my people in two years and we just got to get together. And do you think that's going to be sustainable, that they're going to go back to a normal routine or are we going to be zooming it? I don't know. I mean, I don't ever want to go back to the kind of travel I did in 2019. Mm -hmm. There were times when I literally traveled to China to close a deal whose details had all been negotiated and worked out. And the only purpose of traveling to China was to sit down. Handshake. Yeah, or not even, you know, a cup of tea. Sit down in a formal meeting and have a cup of tea, and then and then the deal is done. That kind of stuff, you know, I'm not sure it, it makes much sense. Some of the professional service firms have said to me that they are determined to keep their travel levels 20 or 30% below what it was in 2019 for climate reasons, because that's where their mm. biggest, that's their big source of emissions. And so they can't go back to travel as they did in the past or their downstream emissions will go back. So we'll see. By the way, you and I haven't talked about climate at all, but that's one of the most stunning things that's going on in this area right now. Tell me. In the last two and a half years, among Fortune 500 companies, there's been an explosion of companies that have made net zero commitments, like 300% increase in the number of companies. And it's now the majority of Fortune 500 companies have made net zero commitments. Now, your skeptic friends will say, well, sure, <laughs> that's easy. You know, it's a 2050 commitment. The CEO is going to be dead in 2050. So go ahead and make a commitment. But what I see from my reporting is just profound changes happen. Let's take Walmart as an example. Walmart has a project called Project Gigaton in which it is working with its suppliers to take a gigaton of carbon emissions out of the environment. It's not mandatory, but the signal is pretty clear. If you want to keep selling to Walmart, you've got to do this. I had a conversation with the CEO of Maersk, the big global shipping company who had just announced this massive investment in hydrogen fuel facilities. They're going to use wind power to create hydrogen fuel to put in their ships. And it's not at all economic right now. So it's not at all clear that that's an economic decision hmm. that benefits their shareholders. So I, obviously I said, why are you doing it? And he said, I'm doing it because every week I get a call from another one of my customers who says, hey, I just made this net zero commitment that requires me to get all the carbon out of my supply chain by 2035 or whatever, 2040. And that means you, I can't use your ships if they're emitting because wow. I, I got to get the carbon out of my, I'll just give you one other example. You know, when Mary Barra in January of last year said GM will only make non-emitting cars in 2035, you know, it's easy to say, well, 2035 is a long time from now. But car companies have to make their investments many years in mm -hmm. advance. I mean, I'm told pretty much every decision that's made at GM these days was filtered through that commitment. It's had a profound behavioral change in the company. And again, you know, is she doing that because she believes that's the best way for the company to make a profit in 2035? I, I think so. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty hard to justify based on the market for EVs today. There's nothing in the market for EVs today that would lead you to believe that GM is going to be able to sell only EV cars within the next 13 years. But it's that social pressure that you're talking about with Maersk, where the client says, hey, no pun intended, you got to get on board because this is a commitment we're making. And now she's seeing the big picture 
10 years from now, the world's going to be a very different place. And everybody, including consumers, are going to be expecting this. Is that her big gamble? That, that's right. And think about what's happening now. So, you know, we talked about the employees. They're feeling it from their employees. Their employees say, you've got to deal with the climate problem. And we want to work for a company that's dealing with the climate problem. They're getting it from investors. Larry Fink, you know, his letters for the last couple of years. They're getting it now from their customers, you know, Walmart saying you got to do something about this. So it's coming at them from all sides. It is no longer just a, oh, I want to do something for the environment because it feels like it's the right thing to do. It's a business imperative. Everything around me is telling me I have to do this to survive. That's fantastic. <laughs> really yeah. fantastic. If the momentum continues and they're envisioning 2035, then they're thinking way out into the future and the future looks good. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up. And this gets back to the government failure part, by the way. I mean, every one of those CEOs will tell you, well, this would be a hell of a lot easier if the government would just impose a price on carbon, you know, a cap and trade system, a carbon tax or something like that. If there were sane government policy, everybody would get aligned with this much more quickly and much more easily. But the government's not doing particularly here in the U.S., the government's not doing that. And so they feel like they have to step up. I don't want to get too far astray, but I would like to get a quick assessment from you on that is why are we as a society? I'm in America. We have an audience in 156 countries. So there's people that may be less interested than, than you and I are. But I have to just say that we have a tolerance for some pretty poor leadership like an inability to cooperate, an inability to find common ground, to vilify the other side when it's all in the same country. Start there. And I just look at that and I just think, why do we tolerate that kind of leadership in government? Because it pours over into how we run our businesses. Well, it's not unique to the United States. I think the polarization of politics can be seen in other countries and not the U.S. alone. But we do have a you know, there was a very good piece that Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter and his colleague Catherine Gell wrote for Fortune five years ago that described our political system as a duopoly and basically said there's a set of incentives and behaviors that make perfect sense for the two parties, but terrible sense for society. And so we have created a political system where more and more people seem less interested in solving problems and more interested in gaining a, an advantage in the next election. Mm -hmm. Self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think most people are kind of like most of the CEOs I talk to. They want to see us deal with inequality. They want to see us deal with climate. They want to see a world of social justice we just have a political system that's become so dysfunctional and polarized that it can't seem to get us there. Do you have hope that it's going to evolve or change? I left Washington 15 years ago and thought at the time it can't possibly get worse, and it got much worse. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some people who think we could end up in an election a couple of years from now where one side refuses to accept the results. You know, arguably the worst civic polarization we've seen since the Civil War, I don't know what it's going to take to make it better. Maybe it will take a crisis to get mm -hmm. us to, to rethink what we're, rethink the way we are conducting our public debates and public politics. One thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about 
we talked about Starbucks a little while ago. How do you explain after 50 years in business that employees across the United States suddenly want to unionize and are unionizing? And now we're seeing this happen in Apple, which, you know, is... It's happening everywhere. I think there's a... It's almost an ideological sense among a lot of young workers that unions are the way to get what they want out of work. And we've been through this before, but most of the people who are pushing for this don't remember what it was like in the 1970s. And so time will tell whether they actually achieve their goals this way. I don't think it means that Starbucks is a bad employer. I think Starbucks is a hard place to work. Yeah, but they have a 50-year history of not being unionized. And when Howard Schultz was there, and I'm sure you've read his books and you know his commitment to employees and retaining health care yeah. for even part-time workers during the Great Recession when the fate of his company was up in the air. Just the values that guy yeah. has. And now all of a sudden you've got people rejecting oh. it. And I don't understand what's happened. He's in a bit of a state of shock. But 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 this gets back to your skeptic friends. You know, nobody <laughs> Not your host, my friends, right? Yeah. Your, your, your skeptic friends. I mean, even Howard Schultz, who is one of the most enlightened employers that you yeah. and I can think of, mm-hmm. people don't trust him. There's a big group of people who don't trust them. And you have a younger generation that really isn't sure they believe in capitalism, which is, I think, kind of shocking given the, given the history of the world of the last 100 years. I think the, the facts show that capitalism has been the greatest contributor to human well-being in the history of the world. I mean, we've had a billion people who've been pulled out of extreme poverty because countries like China embraced the lessons of capitalism. So a lot of it is misguided, but there's clearly a lot of that in among particularly younger people today. Well, I think one element of that is the inequality. And I think even you've pointed out that, in fact, in your book, you pointed out that CEOs are paid 350 times what workers are paid. And 30 years ago, it was 60 times. So I think, you know, income inequality, wealth inequality, so it's easier to look at history over the last hundred years and say, hey, capitalism sure done a good thing for society when you got money in the bank. But if you don't and you're young and you're trying to see how do I buy a house, how do I buy a car, how do I pay off my student loan debt, that looks a little bit more ominous. So what do you think about CEO pay hitting all-time records? I understand why it happens. I think from the standpoint of shareholders, you know, if you're doing a good job and making money for the shareholders, they don't care. But I do think from a trust, trust has become so important in this equation. I think companies are going to have to rethink the way pay gets set in order to retain public trust. Okay, on time for a brief departure from our great discussion. We're going to break away for a segment we call the heartbeat round. I've learned that our listeners are really interested in learning about our guests more personally. And so I have a series of questions I'd like to ask you. But this time, we want you to give us a brief, instinctive answer. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? I am. I am. Hit me. One book you wish every person on the planet would read. How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. A trait you greatly admire in other people. Candor. Your best synonym for the word heart. Probably empathy. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, Definitely arrogance. Number one answer so far in 100 podcasts. (laughs) Cultural value every organization should have. I think it's a bias for action. Inertia is a great force that has to be fought. (laughs) I like that. Your favorite word, you're a writer. Truth. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. I would say care for a child. (laughs) Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. I love the title of the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. <laughs> that, got, that has come with age. <laughs> I understand that. 
One subject you believe all managers would be wise to bone up on. I think AI and machine learning are going to become so important. Data science is at the root of it. I'd say data science. A well-known organization you most admire for their overall culture and respect for employee well-being. I'm a huge fan of Cisco, which has been at the top of our 100 best companies to work for list for a couple of years now. Coolest experience you've ever had as a lifelong journalist? I, I think I would say meeting Nelson Mandela. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true? Uh, change is going to accelerate. <laughs> Newspaper or magazine, other than your own, you never miss reading. I'm still very loyal to the Wall Street Journal, which was my home for 29 years. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. I got it right here. And skill improvement you're working on right now. Uh, I think as I get older, I feel, you know, we all learn to manage our time, but the really important thing is managing your energy. And that's the one that I'm, I'm working on, you know, and that involves food, occasional naps, you know, how many hours of sleep at night, all of those things is incredibly important. Fantastic. Oh, well, leave it there. Those were wonderful and thoughtful answers to the heartbeat room. But you had me thinking about the whole energy thing, because I think it's something everyone's discovering with so much burnout happening. People want to do good work, but they want to have a good life, too. So thank you for going through that with me. Yep. And you can't do good work if you're not managing your energy properly. Agreed. Amen. Very well said. Alan, we couldn't get to everything in your book, of course, so I'd love to just turn the floor over to you and ask if there's any takeaway or insight you'd like our audience to be thinking about before we sign off. I would just summarize by saying I think companies to succeed in the future are going to have to pay much more direct attention to the problems of people and planet, and I think they are doing that, and it doesn't mean that we aren't going to have individual cases of greed, corruption, malfeasance as we always have had, but I do think we're seeing companies move in a better direction because they have to, and that's a good thing for society. This has been a very cool conversation, and you have encouraged me. You've got me excited. I know this is an evolution, not a revolution, but you really punctuated your book really, really well today. So thank you. The name of the book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business, Alan Murray. Thank you on behalf of my audience, some cynical, some not. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to thank my team that brings you our podcast, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and our producer, Eric Oz. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago, and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And as always, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.